Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Welcome to the Blue Hotel, the podcast with the open mind. It's episode nine this time with a reminder to go back anytime and enjoy the previous episodes, each with a different guest and a different theme, and a climax featuring an erotic bedtime story narration, which is fiction, mostly, steamy, always, written and narrated by yours truly. Now, before we get into the episode nine theme this time, on our way to then introducing our special guest, let's take a second to breathe. I mean, consciously breathe, because you know how breathing is like blinking, involuntary. Sometimes when we're concentrating or stressed or in conflict or in danger, we have a tendency to hold our breath or breathe just enough to survive. We don't think about it. But it's this deep, conscious breathing that brings us increased wellness and ability and strength and especially peace and calm and presence. And it's nice to go into a task or an experience or a conversation even with the right frame of mind, including listening to this podcast about relationships and sexuality. I'm glad you're here. It's your host, Jeff Woods, and I think you'll feel a bit better in joining me for this bit of breathing. So here we go. We're going to breathe in three big, deep breaths. Here comes the first. Are you ready? A first big breath in and out. And a second big breath in and out. And finally, one more big breath in and out. Like that. This time on the Blue Hotel podcast, a new special guest. And before I introduce him to you, and him is pretty special because in the first eight episodes, all females, I thought long and hard about who to have on and Hand chose him, and I was thrilled when I reached out to him. He read the message and responded and said, this looks exactly like the kind of place I want to be. So we're thankful for that. We're going to have a compelling conversation about intimacy and understanding and hopeful beginnings and graceful endings and polyamory, too. We'll also get into a topic that's become the theme this time. It's a five-letter word begins with the letter S. Oh, the heaviness of shame, which often pairs nicely, so to speak, with regret. The regret is rooted in the action or the behavior or the decision or the outcome. The shame in the feeling of being bad, bad self. You're bad. Why have you been so bad? Why have you been bad for so long? Shame can find you devaluing yourself. It can also find the person that's feeling the shame attacking others to escape feelings about who you are and what you are and what you did. Projection as a defense. A woman named Mary C. Lamla, who has a Ph.D., wrote a piece in psychologytoday.com, speaks of shame as a concealed, contagious, dangerous emotion. It comes with words like inadequacy, unworthiness, dishonor, disconnection. It can be triggered by others, and shame can be triggered by the feeling that we failed to meet our own expectations, too. Shame can be experienced as such a negative, intense emotion of self-loathing. It can be crushing and disabling. It can leave you feeling empty. And it can be a catalyst for deep depression. And it's damaging at any age. 
including kids who feel abandoned or abused and take on this idea that they themselves are bad and perhaps the cause of their parents' neglect. And that can cut both ways. The parents can feel shame when their kids somehow don't live up to expectations placed upon them. As for the danger in shame, it can be found in the anguish of it all. It can act like a toxin and make you physically ill, mentally exhausted. Shame can color how you see yourself, and that color is usually dark, not light, cloudy, not clear, hopeless instead of hopeful. And you can imagine it can be incredibly cumulative. Shame, if not dealt with and understood and overcome, can pile up layer upon layer alongside regret and other results which only serve to make things even worse than all that would be self-sacrifice and uh, relationship sabotage and worse still addiction and self-harm and apathy and disassociation and taken to the limit suicide been there nearly done that if you find yourself going down these dark roads there's light in finding someone to talk to, obviously. In Canada, there is talksuicide.ca with a toll-free number for help without judgment. That's talksuicide.ca. Now, uh, believe it or not, shame will be a, a factor in this episode's adult bedtime story, which is full of pleasure, but it's rooted in shame. Now, time to introduce our special guest, and it's going to be a bit of a wild ride. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. This time is a man with insight and depth, and his story is rather compelling. Revelations that serve to inspire and provoke thought. He's a writer, teacher, speaker committed to living fully and deeply with no regrets, no reserves, no retreats. What most intrigues me about him is his understanding of the how around effective communication, which I think is really the cornerstone, the backbone of relationships with not only what you think, but what you feel. And not only that, but the realities of when things aren't to be, how you end them gracefully and how you navigate that. He loves to share stories from his own history, including the trials and errors of long-term commitments and polyamory and divorce, infidelity, remarriage, and raising a blended family. The author of As You Are, the co-host of the Love You Like Hell podcast, the man behind the path, a self-paced transformational course. We say hello to Rainier Wild. Hello, sir. Hello, Jeff. It's really good to be here. I'm glad you are. Thank you. One of the most compelling stories I've read as of late was the one you tell about never having felt that much at home anywhere, but then coming to a realization within yourself that home isn't so much a place as it is a feeling. Mm. Tell, tell us a bit more about what you got at in that, in that piece. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the backseat of a station wagon and uh, saw the lower 48 uh, from those rearview windows. My father was a, a tele-evangelist and an evangelical minister traipsing us around from camp meetings and revivals and all these very strange, bizarre uh, things that, you know, I don't know if many people even know what those are, but composed my childhood, this strange... Uh, nucleus. And I ended up just seeing so much. Everyone had their double. I think I just encountered faces and places aplenty. And it left my heart rather hmm, uh, empty. The band U2 says it, well, you left my heart empty as a vacant lot. And I think that's how I felt, right? There is this real sense of always looking for home, looking for home in other people's eyes. I think that only takes you so far. It only took me so far. And especially from about the age of 16 forward, I began a rather intense fascination with romantic love. And didn't I know a string of lovers? 
one after the other. I got married very early. That didn't stop me from continuing my search for love. I rather relentlessly pursued others. I didn't know what polyamory was, and I certainly wasn't being polyamorous. I was just being poorly monogamous and racked up some mileage. The cost was quite heavy. Eventually, that marriage that came to a collapse and an end and the community that I was a part of that had really been so important to me for so many years at that point in time also ended. And it left me with this sense that if I didn't find home inside of myself, I would never know home at all. I began to study psychology. I began to study particularly the Western approach to transformation. What I learned was that radical acceptance of who I was, of how I was made up, those parts that I had so eagerly cut away in order to be in relationship, that that was somehow the building blocks for all of it, that that would be the gates to home. Rainier, tell me barriers that you identified through your learning about acceptance the S word comes to mind in so many conversations I have. That would be shame. Is that mm. one of the barriers? And what were the other ones to finding who you are and accepting who you are? Let's take a side view of shame and begin to notice that shame actually is this internal sense of badness. Like when I look inside of myself, I see only brokenness. And of course, so many of us received that from the institutions we were a part of, from society and the systems and the, the parental figures and the authorities who uh, began rather relentlessly to correct us, to cover us over, to better us. I remember my father would so often say, mm, you have so much potential so much potential. And of course, doesn't potential mean that who I am right now isn't adequate? <laughs> uh, and so there is a accumulated mountain of shame. Over time, that becomes, that becomes a self-reinforcing system, doesn't it? And so what happens is I, I cut away, I bury those parts that I'm ashamed of in order to belong. And now I've created a second barrier, which is a lack of authenticity. My own lack of authenticity, my own lack of ability to show up fully in a room, my own addiction to looking good and being right, I began to suppress and repress at a terrible cost. I think that those two things, shame and then the inauthenticity that often comes from that, are a powerful couplet. I think that many things emerge from that, but they all kind of form around the nucleus of lying, right? I'm lying in order to belong. I'm lying in order to be in relationship. I'm cutting away. I'm suppressing. I'm repressing. Or I'm playing a certain role. I'm always the victim. Or I'm always the challenger. Or I'm always the rescuer. We become addicted to these roles that we learn in order to be inauthentic, in order to cover our shame, in order to belong. You see, it's like a daisy chain, right? One thing leads to the next and so on and so forth until I become an identity that I have no clue about. And you did then. Again, and again. And again. And again. <laughs> the recycle of the things that don't serve you? How do you get to a place that isn't that anymore? I think that you have to be willing to be honest. You have to be willing to look at yourself and say, this is who I am exactly as I am. This is the pattern that I fall. I always fall into it. And when you can take that intense, scrutinizing, and honest look at yourself, suddenly you begin to find something like freedom. Uh, someone recently asked me, do you ever stop lying? 
(laughs) to yourself, to the world. No, you don't. And it is precisely when you come to the place that you say, no, I'm always a cover up. I'm always a mask. I'm always trying to impress. I'm always trying to put on airs. I'm always trying to, to cover over in order to belong. Suddenly, that becomes a freeing place. And so, you know, I admit, like, I, I want to look good for you, Jeff. And I want to look good to your listeners. And I, I really want to impress everyone. I want to impress everyone so they think I'm a great guy. I want them to think I'm a great guy so that I'll feel like a great guy. I want my partner to enjoy me. I want her to think that I am capable somehow of navigating this outside world so that she feels more safe and secure in the inner world that we've engineered. I want my kids to look up to me. Oh my God, I want them to think well of me. I don't want them to think poorly of me. You see, I'm engaged in a lying project. And when I admit it, I become free. I'm a little older than you. And I've, therefore, just by virtue of time and repetition, made more mistakes than you. And I've, but I'm looking in the mirror when you tell me the things you've told me in the last 13 minutes. I'm looking in the mirror at this, this this mountain of shame that I have gotten past and regret that I am not doing anymore, but of the wanting to look good. And I don't mean aesthetically, the wanting to look good about the things that I think, the things that I do and the things that I've done. But I've gotten to a place where everything comes out completely honestly in the first minute of someone taking an interest in me romantically, where I convince them it's probably not a good idea. By saying the things that are real and authentic and true and me, and I think that they're going to walk away. When they say, no, that's okay. I know this of you. I'm still interested. That's when I go, well, okay, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk some more. I'm not sure you quite understand the depth of the things that I'm telling you, but if you're still interested, it's worth talking about. Some of them run away. Are you telling me that you're still covering up and still your front-facing Rainier is maybe not exactly Rainier? Tell me more about you. I think that it becomes, you know, like when you learn a sport. When you learn a sport, everything's macro movements. As you become more and more adept at the sport, you begin to learn subtle movements, micro movements. And so you move from a certain kind of training, a certain kind of uh, teaching to something a little more expansive, a little more um, fine-tuned, fine detail, but far more freeing. So when I was younger, the lies were patently obvious. Oh my God. Today they're less. Today it's like, I'm lying to myself. Do I think this relationship can work? Am I putting in the effort to try and make me feel like I'm somebody? Am I, am I loving this person, hoping that in loving them, they'll see that I'm okay? And if they think that I'm okay, then I must be okay, right? And so participating in a, in a self-delusional process. I think that that really is the heart and soul of it all, right? That we begin to see finer and finer brush strokes. It's not exactly as though I'm walking around a total illusion. No, no. Again, as I show up, as I allow myself to be seen, and I think you you said something so good right there, as I can show others and they can say, oh, I see you. I see you. I see you for, for the cover-up. I see you for the masks that you wear. And by the way, I like your mask. I also like what's underneath. As you can do that, it really does help to kind of free you from that process. And I think that that's important. I think that's how we progress. The process of deciding what you want and then going after what it is you've decided you want. Tell me how that looks for you. Uh, A lot of people get confused about this, in part because the systems that have enculturated us relentlessly tell us to not want 
to not desire or to not listen to our desires, right? I think of myself as a little guy riding there in the back seat of the station wagon. You know, we would travel these vast swaths of territory and I'd have to go to the bathroom like every other exit. I'd say, I'd say, oh, dad, dad, I I really got to pee. And the first question that I would get was, do you really? Oh, okay. So right there, doubt yourself. So then I would, I would check, I would investigate. No, I, I really have to go bad, I would say. And then he would respond, can you hold it? I acknowledge it's real, but do you, do you have to give in to it? You see? So I think that this is a small little example of how we learn to doubt ourselves, as humorous as that is, perhaps. As humorous as it is, we learn to doubt the truth held in our bodies. We learn to doubt the realities of our desires as basic or as natural as they are. So that then we have to have these really elaborate stories around it. Like, oh my God, it's always been my dream to have something like this. I, I've needed it ever since I was six years old. And if I don't have it, I'm going to explode. What if you could just want it? What if you could just want it? So one of the things that I'm engaged with is not questioning myself too much. I have my values. I have my North Star, so to speak. And beyond that, I allow life to kind of direct me. So an opportunity comes up, I find that it matches a short-term desire and I find that it's congruent with my long-term values. If I can make it happen, I do. I I think that there's something interesting here, this tension between my short-term desires and my long-term values. When those two come in conflict, the middle path is something that you want to achieve right? The middle path is something you want to find. Like, can I find a middle way between my, my desire right now and my values sometimes, <laughs> right? Like, let, let's just imagine that, you know, my, my partner's favorite kind of cake is chocolate cake, which is true. And it's her birthday and I make her chocolate cake and it's a surprise for her. She doesn't, she doesn't quite know yet. And, uh, then I wake up at 2 a.m. And I start thinking about that chocolate cake and I want a piece of it right now. But I know if I have that piece that she's going to get real pissed off about it. Okay. Well, I I certainly don't want to piss my partner off. That's my long-term value here. But my short-term desire is that cake. Now, there's a lot of options in the middle that can meet both of those. But if I'm pulled into extremes, here's how it sounds. Well, you should never have that chocolate cake. It'll go straight to your hips, buddy. And what are you thinking about stealing your wife's treat, right? <laughs> I can get real judgy about that short-term desire. On the other hand, if I, if, I, if I swing to the other side, it's like, oh, eat the whole cake. Eat it now. You know, no one will ever think twice about it. And what does she care? She doesn't need the cake. These extremes. But what if I could just very, very simply enjoy the experience? I could, uh, and I'll tell you the, the real truth because this actually happened, I could go into the kitchen, I could cut that piece of cake, and I could bring it to my wife at 2 a.m., wake her up with two forks, and say, happy birthday, baby. (laughs) Short-term desire, long-term value. I love that. I didn't know how you'd uh, find a way, but that's a a great solution. (laughs) I think there is usually a middle path between the two. And where there's not a middle path, that really is the opportunity to go with your long-term values. If you can't resolve the two, go with the long-term value. The stages of intimacy. And first, before you can even get to the stages, you have to define what intimacy looks like, how it's defined. How is it defined by you, Rainier? What is intimacy? Hmm. I don't have a good definition, to be honest. <laughs> I, I really don't. Really? I know that when I've met love, I've known it. I know that when I've seen love, I've seen it all the way. I know that there is a deep sense of being at home when I am found in love. 
I think that sometimes love shows up like a hospital where we're just always being healed. And then sometimes love shows up as a marketplace where our needs are met. You know, it's like I need some chicken noodle soup. So I go down to the marketplace or I, I'm horny. And so I go find a relationship, (laughs) right? A marketplace where we just go to get our needs met. But I don't think either one of those are actually love. Or at least I should say at some point in time, they have to graduate and they have to graduate to home, to that place where I'm at rest, to that place where I am loved where I am seen, where I am known. That, that's how I would define, very, very simply, my experience of intimacy. When you can tell someone who you are, the real authentic you, and they can in turn tell you who they are, and you're both okay with it, that seems like the road to a mm-hmm. greater intimacy and a road to an actual relationship where you're not hiding, you're not not telling the truth. You're being intimate. You're, you're, you're accepting of the person as they are, not as they pretend to be. What about the stages of this so-called intimacy? I think the first stage is union. <laughs> I love union. Union is this wonderful time where we're inspired to get up off the couch <laughs> the couch of our lonely isolation, which is so satisfying, isn't it? Oh my God. You know, I think of, of being compelled by love. Even recently, my heart was, was opened and, and I had this falling in love experience. I thought I was doing okay. I thought I was just, just, you know, fine. And I had these well-ordered, well-organized places in my own heart. And then, then, oh my God, you see someone. Oh, and aren't they amazing? And isn't it incredible? And of course, that they would like you, that they would love you. Oh my God. And, and might that mean that I also am incredible? And you see that union stage is so wonderful because it motivates us from our secure isolation it puts wings on us. It lifts us from our sense of mm, solitude and allows us to walk out the front door, which we really need because loving is risk. Because every relationship ends in death, if we go long enough, or divorce for many of us, endings, ruptures. Even the best relationships end, right? And so, To counterbalance that existential truth, we really have to be motivated by that early stage of love. Hopefully, we show up in such a way, as I was able to even in this recent connection, which was honest and authentic, as you've been talking about, where it was like, oh, my heart is filled with love, brimming, but here's who I am. (laughs) I'm needy and I'm clingy and, and sometimes I don't get it right and I put my my foot in my mouth, all these things, and they know you. And they know you and they see you. And then there's some things they don't know. And there's some things you don't. And in fact, you, you fall in love with each other's masks just a little bit or a lot, depending. And that is how we would characterize union. You know, a lot of people, you know, call this the infatuation stage. And I think it can be. It doesn't have to be exactly that. Have you noticed a pattern in the attraction that you have again and again and again what have you noticed about your thing in your attraction in that wanting to have a union with someone it's brown eyes brown golden eyes and brunette hair full-bodied brunette hair and a laugh that takes over the room and a way of being in the world that is both strong and fragile all at once, like a rose. Whenever you see a rose, it's so tightly wound. When I see a rose in full bloom, it's strong, like a fortress. But of course, those petals can fall apart at any moment. You know, what did Dylan say? 
she looks just like a woman, but she breaks like a little girl. <laughs> and I think that that is, of course, in, in the different ways I've just described, that's probably the archetype I, I love and look for. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of, if I'm really honest, a lot of, you know, your, your family of origin wrapped up in those people that you love, right? I think of my mother's hyper availability, right? And I think of my father's hyper unavailability. So I see this push pull here. And even in my partners, I see that push pull, right? And, and really needing that, you know, I've often been in plural relationships where there's been two people. Um, and I've noticed that when I'm in those connections, they almost always split out that way with one person being hyper available and the other person being unavailable somewhat, um, whether by choice or unconsciously. So I think that there is a projection of childhood that ends up on those people and places. Do you think that that, um, that pull and that desire has to do with familiarity or, or what else is at play? Well, I've looked at this one a lot. I think to some extent for a long time in my life, that union stage was characterized by however the mask came to me, the person underneath represented strangely my father. And so it really was a, an unavailable love that I was seeking out. I really wanted to impress my dad. I wanted him to fall in love with me, so to speak. And I kept seeking that out in partner after partner. Will you love me? Will you be the one who recognizes the potential in me? And even though the obstacles are great, and even though the challenges are large, will you be the one to fall in love with me? I think for a long time, that was what I sought. God, sometimes it still is, right? The, the, the rut is so deep. The rut is so large that that can become so compelling. Oh, that this person will be the one to love me. That doesn't feel like home though, <laughs> right? It feels a bit like a triage where the wound is gaping and bloody. There are some wounds that I don't think will ever be healed. But I think you learn to live with them. You learn to live as a walking wounded, but not in that horrible or grotesque of ways, but where your wounds are what heals others. There's so much there to get into and talk about uh, polyamory. We all know that everything ends, if mm. not in death uh, as a context, then certainly as we look at numbers of, of divorces, divorce rates, at least one in every two relationships that are called marriages. And mm. it seems to be that uh, without getting into it now, because I want to take you somewhere else first, it seems to me that everybody I know with kids is not with the mm. partner they had them with. But music, Dylan, you too. This connection to music, romance is a huge part of that, depending on the songs we choose to listen to and the lyrics that they have. Tell us more about your connection to music as a young person. I didn't actually listen to anything like secular music till I was 11 years old. I don't even think I had heard a drum beat until around then, believe it or not. Just the, the world that I traveled in, that was, that was anathema. Uh, and when I was introduced uh, to it, I fell in love with the 50s. I fell in love with bebop doo-wop. I fell in love with the Supremes and the Shirelles. I went through this very interesting sequence. I think it's interesting because of who I am today in the world. I fell in love with the 50s, the big bopper. Oh my God. And Buddy Holly. And then, and then I discover the Beach Boys. Oh my God. And then the Beatles. And then I discovered the late era Beatles. And then from there, <laughs> I went through the cultural revolution, right? I literally walk the entire road. By the time I get to the modern era, I have become the modern era, right? I caught up to myself. My parents were musicians among other things. And so I, I uh, learned how to play the guitar and the piano. I became a singer songwriter uh, and spent a large part of my twenties uh, 
involved and invested in in being a sad-eyed singer of love songs for sad-eyed lovers uh and wrote many (laughs) mid-tempo rockers dedicated to love um i love the romantic vision of the world that music offers us. I think C.S. Lewis said something like that music is the closest thing to eternity that we know. And isn't that true? I mean, just how it breaks open your heart, right? The stories it tells, but even wordlessly, the stories it tells. These days, when I write a post, I might be in the bathtub and I might have Max Richter, the, the great classical soundtrack composer, playing in the background the most sad of songs, breaking my heart open as I write, you know, channeling these emotions. So this is a big part of my life. This is a big part of the, the sensual experience of being alive for me, music. Uh, I, don't, I don't play so many concerts anymore except for my four kids, but I sure do love it. <laughs> Does anything compelling in terms of writing come out of you from happy songs? Because for a lot of us, there's nothing more beautiful and nothing more inspiring than the not happy songs. <laughs> to quote you too again, I think Bono said something like, uh, sad songs are easier to write. Uh, I think as a songwriter, that's so true. It is easier to write something with a minor chord. Sigur Ross, the the Icelandic band, they they had a an album. Uh, I think it was their third album. Ah, Tak, which means thanks, and that album was pure joy. When I listen to that album, all I hear is joyfulness. There are some moments, like when I'm listening to bluegrass or dirty Southern hip hop. And I have to tell you, I just smile endlessly. I just delight myself in it. So yes, I think I think a lot of things come out of me when I experience that. You know, earlier this year, I, I spent a month in Crete. And in part, this was a, a coming home for me, sort of, as strange as that sounds. When I was in one of my early bands, my mother listened to one of our demos. And she says to me, why are all your songs so sad? And I was telling that to my bandmates who were all laughing. And then one of them says, well, you know, Rainier, it is actually very true. Your songs are pretty sad. And he says, I think they would be a lot happier if you went and spent a month in a sunny place like Mexico or Crete. Well, sure enough, I decided, you know, 35 years later that I would go to Crete. I spend a month there. I got to tell you, there was so much joy coming back. So much happiness. So much absolute and unadulterated smiling. And so I was, you know, uh, uh, listening to, to all kinds of soul lifting, vibrant music textures from Greece. And so I, I think, yes, there's just such a place for that kind of joyful explosion of life. Let's go where I teased. We would go. I hear criticisms of people who are poly criticisms of people who are seeking multiple partners and the criticisms often go like this you're just never satisfied why do you have to have so much why are you letting your desires rule you let's talk a bit about polyamory from your experience and your perspective what can you tell us well for one thing i think that we could easily say and and really mean it is that I'm actually going to agree with the perspective. To some extent, when we are involved in simply pursuing our own desires or gratifying ourselves moment to moment, I think that there is an insatiability to it. And I'm going to be really clear here. I think it takes someone who's good at monogamy to be good at polyamory. <laughs> By that, I, I mean that you're actually going to have to keep your agreements, right? Whatever those are polyamory is not the absence of agreements with self or others. In fact, I think it is a a proliferation of agreements. It is a clear-eyed understanding of what works for you and what doesn't. It gets real dicey when you don't understand those things. Um, So to the point, I, I think that some people have a real misguided view of what that is. But I, I want to back up yet another step and just say, I think that it's a sin that we've been taught that we had to cut away parts of ourself and our own desire in order to participate in society. 
I think that being fully yourself is your purpose in life. Now, we've been educated by institutions and authorities and saints that we had to deny ourselves, and that self-denial was the highest path. Like that was the most noble of callings. So I want to, I want to use some words from that lexicon. Be selfless, self-sacrifice, deny yourself. Uh, listen, slaughtering yourself on the altar of what someone else thinks is right is not a good idea. How did we ever imagine that this was what holiness or goodness or, or a well-ordered society looked like? I mean, I'm a little flabbergasted at this because we keep following the prescriptions of a society that has, by and large, left us mutilated. We, we would never go to a doctor who has surgeries that end in you know bloody massacres and has left a, a trail of corpses in his wake. But I will say that the prophets and the priests and the politicians and the crusaders have peddled this across the ages. You read their biographies, self-sacrifice, deny, all of this. They're not happy. I sat in their counseling sessions. They were miserable and they would make us miserable. The great HR managers of the world would love to put laws on what you should do with your body and what you should do with your time. Listen, they're miserable and they want you to be miserable too. And that seems insane. I, I think that conformity and discipline have been the tools of control. And I don't think they've delivered on their promises at all. You're reminding me so beautifully and unexpectedly of, uh, of George Carlin and that word. And I've never thought of it until you just said it the way you said it, selfless. I think that we are taught, again, to prioritize the needs of others above ourselves. But, but if we could just for a moment step back and think, I actually think that rightly understood when I prioritize myself, I actually also prioritize you. Why did we ever imagine that me being miserable is going to make other people happy? Rarely does. <laughs> we have agreed to what we have agreed is a, is a, is a lyric from oh. Eddie Vedder. And, um, and, and that I'm always reminded of when I think of the negotiations to your point about I have more agreements and more things to live up to when I have more than one person in my life in some romantic um, <laughs> fashion. So you do have to be a really good one-on-oneer to be a one-on-more-than-oneer. One of the things when we put all our needs on one person, I think that gets really difficult for that one person to fill all our needs. I, I, let's just back off of that, though. You know, we are living in an interesting and unprecedented time where we define monogamy in a way that we've never defined it before. In the last 150 years, we've brought together four at least major streams of, uh, of what has been monogamy. Sexual monogamy, where I'm faithful to one person. Uh, emotional monogamy, where I'm emotionally available only to one person. Social monogamy, where I share a friend group and am only friends with a certain subclass of people. And then practical monogamy, where we share property, we share kids, etc. Now, those have been split out before in many different cultures, in many different ways. Today, we bring all of them together in late modern era monogamy. Here's the thing. It's not working. <laughs> Again, you, you, you named the statistics. It's just not working for people. It certainly hasn't worked for me across the years. I think that sometimes we have to just fess up to notice that there's a difference between our idealism and our actual experience. Today, the monogamy that most people experience looks nothing like what the monogamy of what their grandparents would have experienced, right? What their grandparents would have experienced is one person for life, your only sexual partner. <laughs> Today, even the most fundamentalists of us have a fairly lax view of it. Oh, you've had multiple sexual partners. God will forgive you. Hey, did not used to be the case. Today we can see that our ideas of monogamy are changing. I honestly believe in 50 years that we will see a plethora of relational styles and it will not be strange at all. Again, they're changing laws around this. If they're changing laws around it, God, that means that some kind of groundswell is happening. 
We're going to talk about how to end things well, but first let's talk about before the ending. And sometimes infidelity doesn't lead to the end. It's a fork in the road that's either reparation or separation. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit about that. Well, I think relationships end over and over and over and begin over and over and over. Um, one of the things we have to recognize is how we, how we change and are constantly changing. We get so addicted to these ideas. Oh, I fell in love with them. That was union. They'll never change. We get very addicted to that mask we see during union. And then we begin the whole project to collude with them to never take off the mask. <laughs> we're, we're both very helpful in making sure that you don't take off, you don't change, you don't change. Oh, you can't change. And I can't change either. Now, when I start to change, I make sure to pretend that I was not changing. You know, recently I had a friend who told me that he's terribly involved in psychedelics for personal transformation. It's really helping him a lot. He's changing quite a bit. I asked if his partner knew. He said, hell no, she wouldn't approve. <laughs> you don't change if I won't change. That's the whole nature of the stage of collusion. Of course, that falls apart. We catch him in the act. And then begins the great disillusionment. Disillusionment is when the masks are off and I see the masks are off and I don't recognize who the hell I got married to in the first place. That is the beginning. That is, is the beginning of possibility. For me, it came in the case, at least in one situation, where uh, I confessed to, to my partner infidelity and her world was shattered. Of course, she didn't recognize the person she was in relationship to. And quite frankly, neither did I in that moment. It was a powerful feedback loop. In that moment, she invited me not too long after I had shared it with her over to the bed. And she asked if I would just hold her. I think of that moment sometimes because I think that was really the first moment I ever actually held her. We were both being painfully real. The masks were off. We were seeing each other for who we were. That is the promise then of forward momentum. All the illusions of the past felt good, but they weren't real. When we can get authentic, even if it's painful, then I think that we can build on something. That's when most relationships also just fall apart. Yeah. The possibility of communion is when I can see you for who you are and I can choose you in this moment. That is really the, the final iteration of love, the full iteration of love. Now, communion also can be a stage of ending. I can see you, I can love you, and I can leave you. You know, I, I wrote a song for my ex-wife where I said, I still believe in you, I'll still be leaving you. Uh, and I meant both of them. <laughs> uh, I think that's, that's how endings work. If they're good endings. How do we have better endings? How are we able to be more graceful in the choices we make to make it so? Because, God, the horror stories that end with any number of things from I hate you to I hurt you, it can get really awful. It, it can go to the most dramatic of, of, of ungraceful endings. They're everywhere in every mm -hmm. culture. How do we do better? I think for one thing, we recognize that our journey is to walk each other home. You know, Byron Katie talks about loving her partner so much that she will be the one to help pack his bags as he leaves. And I think that's just a better way to love that, that I could love you so much that I could want what's best for you so much that I allow for that space for you to leave me. Yeah. But so often our wounds are too great, aren't they? We're too scared. It's too scared to be alone. Too scared of who we are without this person. There's also that need to feed ego and be 
right at the end. And the power struggle continues right to the end, really. We're not graceful in that we can't say, I'm sorry. I really, I really blew it. And, and we blew it and I'm sorry mm -hmm. and, and we're parting yeah. and I still care for you enough to say I'm sorry and goodbye. Mm. Yeah. Why are those words so hard? <laughs> I think a love language unto itself is I'm sorry you were right. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot of us struggle with that. You know, eating crow isn't easy for anyone. Hard conversations are usually never easy. And I think it, it starts uh, with the simple admission that I was wrong. But that's good to know. It's good to know that I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I think one of the great easinesses in my relationships today is I start with the assumption that I'm actually fallible. <laughs> right. I mean, I have nothing to prove at that point. I can really fuck it up. Yeah. And that enables me to hear the other perspective. Rainier, you've been a gentleman and, and your time is valued here. And we thank you for being part of the Blue Hotel podcast. And I ask you this, the best place for people to get more of you, because once we get a piece of you, we want to know more about you. And, and your writing is fantastic. Where do we go to get more of you? Well, please go over to Instagram, Rainier Wild. That really is where I, I live and breathe. I also have a sub stack there into the wild uh, that, I, that I publish on. Um, subscribe to my newsletter. You can always find more of me through that and all the places that I show up there too. But go over to Instagram, Rainier Wild. That's where I, I conduct most of my affairs. Rainier, thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful. You're amazing. He did it right at the Blue Hotel. He did her right at the Blue Hotel. Okay, the story this time was inspired by a uh, Blue Hotel podcast social media share that I stumbled upon. It was uh, an image of the character played by Amy Adams in the movie American Hustle. The caption reads, You can't slut shame me if there's nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> Which led me to title the story I'm about to tell you, Lenny and Levi's Slut Shame. You know how I love the alliteration. Lenny and Levi. Shame and guilt, these are, these are things that have no place here. Or do they? Let's assume, given our understanding of things we've explored so far, this episode and previous to this, that shame and guilt can kill, literally, and at the very least, render a person unable to see themselves as worthy. But if a person can do the work to get beyond shame and guilt for the things they did, or even the things they simply thought for our Catholic contingent, therein lay opportunity. Now, honesty, in our estimation, is still the best policy. Honesty with self, honesty between partners, really an underpinning of intimacy, isn't it? Let me go a bit further before we start. There's a, another angle to shame and to guilt that is worth a peek behind the curtain, I think. Question being, could it be that which burdens us is also something of a gift? Not only to growth, but shame and guilt could be a path to pleasure. For him it was, and he told her so. She wasn't sure, so they talked about it, and over time it started to turn her on, just thinking about it. This idea that shame can actually result in pleasure became this huge turn-on for them both. I think the erotic has a way of showing up out of the blue when you least expect it, and sometimes when you most need it. There actually doesn't even have to be a reason. Just the presence of the fact that the mind is like a parachute, it works better when it's open. Shame acting is a healing force, a reckoning, a redemption, all wrapped up in a ritual, not just welcomed but begged for by the shame-laden submissive, a punishment. Humiliation can be part of it too, or not. The pleasure is the reward. The power is with the submissive. The dominant one in the equation plays his or her role in the way the sub desires it to be. Doms and subs. The dance can be electrifying for both. Consent discussed along with 
understanding of boundaries, coming to a clear vision of what's allowed and what's not, and then consent reverbalized so you're ready to go. With one more thing to think about, that at any time the yes can turn to a no by anyone involved, full stop. So Levi, all the times he had broken boundaries with a partner, out of sheer desire, letting his libido lead, letting the little head overpower the big head, again and again and again, partner after partner, a cheater. Over time it had become this mountain of shame. But now there were two ways to put on the red shoes and dance the blues, as it were. One, there had to be agreement around the how their monogamous partnership might work, or around the how their consensual non-monogamous agreement would operate. But that's not important right now. What is? Levi wanted his partner, Lenny, to punish him for all the wrongdoings of his life in all the ways she could muster. He was open to whatever she would do to make him pay, to make him feel, to make him hurt, to bring him the kind of pain that was actually pleasure. He'd been sharing ideas with Lenny about how he wanted her to use him and to abuse him. She reveled in the anticipation taking mental notes, browsing online at ways and means. Turns out Lenny actually had a head start. The eye hooks that Levi had long ago driven into the corners of the bed, points at which ropes would meet, extending to wrists and ankles. Lenny's limbs. She looked up into the mirror on the ceiling, loving how stretched her arms and legs appeared in the form of a fully extended jumping jack, but horizontally, sometimes on her back, other times face down, exposed, raw, and ready. And there was a heavier gauge eye hook that Levi had driven into the beam above, from which to hang a length of chain that would clip into the hooks on the same leather cuffs wrapped snugly around her wrists, stretching her vertically. All access, all at once. He'd shorten the chain to force her on her tiptoes, lengthen it so she could drop to her knees, raise it again so she was at the perfect height to straddle him on the wooden chair. And so they mastered all of that together. Where they'd yet to wade was into the depths that revealed more of what was possible around shame. Linny was resourceful. She wanted to surprise Levi, and so she did. Downtown at her apartment, where without his knowledge, she had delivered and installed a St. Andrew's cross. Rigid and strong and made of wood and anchored to the ceiling and to the floor. On the mirrored wall... The St. Andrew's Cross reminds some of the flag of Scotland or the Cross of Burgundy, the X-shaped cross on which St. Andrew is said to have been martyred by crucifixion. But this St. Andrew's Cross was in Linny's master bedroom, the sort of thing you'd see in BDSM dungeons and in sex clubs like Oasis Aqua Lounge, an imposing structure with its requisite restraining points for ankles and wrists and waist, too. When secured, the subject is restrained in a standing, spread-eagle position, back or front-facing. Back to the cross allows for access to the front of the body, obviously, teasing and tempting and taking. Face to the cross, the perfect position to be paddled and whipped and taken, whatever. Lenny wasted no time strapping Levi in. His ass as perfect as any she'd ever seen. He was wearing nothing but a grin. His cock shot north as hard as he'd ever been. She put on music, something they both loved to fuck to. A song with the words that go, I stand in front of you, I'll take the force of the blow. The song known as Protection by Massive Attack. Lenny left Levi alone for a bit, leaving the room to change, dimming the lights on the way out. Levi stood there with his imagination running wild. And Lenny returned, gliding through the room in a carefully chosen black leather body harness with silver metal rings and tits and ass and her full dark bush and pink lips exposed because access is everything. 
Seeing her in the mirror as she now was, Levi's cock pressed against the cross, throbbed. Linny, new to the art of dominance, chose not a whip for Levi's punishment, but rather to start, she held it in her right hand, a dual-sided, vegan-friendly, faux-leather spanking paddle, smooth and flat, not padded, with its wide, round spanking surface designed to spread sensation for maximum satisfaction, as it was promised. Linny approached his backside and reached for the tip of his cock, pinching its head slightly, wiping away the pre-cum that had spilled over, and she licked it from her fingers, and then she put three of them into his mouth and told him to suck, and he did, and then she pinched his left nipple just a bit to feel it harden that much more. And the music had stopped. Protection had finished. Paddle in hand, Linny chose another song to go with Levi's Punishment, another from their favorite band, Massive Attack. The song that begins with the words, Love, love is a verb. Linny's breath was now on Levi's neck, and she stretched her neck a bit to whisper in his ear. It's time to get started, she said. Your ass is mine. And with one hand, she rubbed in circles on his butt-slapped cheek. Round and round, lightly, and then she stopped. And then with the paddle, gave it a whack. Nothing really hard yet, but it made him harder still. And then she hit him again, just a bit harder, and again, and again. And with each hit, his cock pulsated. And then Lenny hit harder, and harder still. And Levi started making audible sounds that were getting louder. She paused for a second, leaned in again. One by one, squeezed each of his nipples. And this time, gripped his cock and squeezed tightly. He'd always told her that she couldn't hurt it. She took it as a challenge. Then back into his ear, her voice said, Okay, here we go. And as the sounds of the song Teardrop filled the air, it was punctuated every four bars as Lenny delivered a series of solid and intentional hits synchronized with the rhythm of the click track of the song's metronome. Lenny hit Levi's ass as hard as she possibly could alternating left and right, and leaving a bright red mark on both sides. And then she stopped, and put her hand upon his back, and lightly rubbed, and dropped her hand down, and very lightly caressed his stinging ass. While she whispered into his ear again, Good boy, you think you deserve a treat? Levi turned his head and said, Thank you. Thank you so much. I needed that. I need you, and I want you so fucking bad. She kissed his lips and said, okay. And then she released him from each of the four restraints on his ankles and his wrists and turned him around and rewarded him with her lips, but this time on his cock, its head glistening with more pre-cum. She took the tip in her mouth and enjoyed more of that sweetness. And then she sucked, inch by inch deeper with each stroke until she was taking its full hardness to the back of her throat. She loved it. Now he was moaning in a different way, and the familiar rhythm of her hand and mouth working together made him crazier by the minute, especially when she looked up, stared at him while she sucked away. And then she slowed the rhythm down, and then she stopped. And just then the song Teardrop was over. But Lenny had one more up her sleeve. The artist peaches in the song, Fuck the Pain Away. And then Lenny did just that. She led Levi by the hand over to the day bed where she laid her body down and spread her legs and said, Fill me. She was dripping from the excitement and his cock slid in so easily and it started to pump. She said, Give it to me as hard as you possibly can and fill me. I'm good. Just do it. And so he did. And he would soon come again, but only after they took care of her. 
And that's how they fucked the pain away and the shame away. And that's how they christened the St. Andrew's Cross, agreeing it would come in handy again, especially on Sunday mornings. A perfectly filthy and fun way to see God's wonder at work. What a perfectly natural act. And what a way to finish episode nine. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me back to the Blue Hotel. The Blue Hotel Podcast, just about every Thursday at midnight Eastern. Follow, listen, enjoy, rate, review, share, repeat. Thank you. Until next time, I'm Jeff Woods. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.